Now, if you have your Bibles, we want to go back to John chapter 6, obviously. And you'll remember last week we looked at uh, an incredible aspect of the, the great miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And, uh, you know, we looked at it and we really kind of went behind the scenes. And, and upon further study together, we saw that not everybody in that story had the right attitude and the right motive. That uh, when it came to their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can tell you, and I know that many of you understand this who work with people, many times in the lives of God's people, things are not always what they appear to be. Many times when you're working somebody, you've got to peel, actually peel back the layers to get to the real issue. And uh, it's unfortunate because in that time, a lot of things can happen, a lot of things can go south, but that's the way human nature is. And they back then, like here, uh, will just use God and His Word um, and His church uh, to get what they want and care nothing about this ministry or any ministry. Uh, They know and have learned how to say all the right things. And as we saw in Isaiah chapter 29 last week, verses 9 through 13, they just give him lip service. They tell God what they think he wants to hear. They honor him, the Bible says, in that passage with their lips, but their heart is far from them, him. And um, all, all he is to them, and we talked about this last week, and this was really the crux of what was going on with the feeding of the 5,000 All that those people were, and many, many people today, all God is to them is that spiritual meal ticket. You get what you want from Him, but you're not willing to give anything back to Him. And, you know, God's people get so complacent in their Christian lives. And it's something that everybody has to to guard against. You know, totally forgetting the day that they got saved and what all God has done for them. You know, they, they treat their salvation like we do when we get a new car or we, somebody gets a new house or a lady gets a new dress or a guy gets a new set of golf clubs or ball bat or, or whatever the case may be. It's so exciting at the moment that we obtain it. But in time, the newness wears off and uh, it no longer is that important to you. And everything, you know, begins to deteriorate. The golf clubs sit in the garage. You know, the car gets a fender bender. And the new dress, you know, gets uh, worn several times. And pretty soon it's nothing special anymore. You know, and I would never presume to speak for anybody. But I'll speak for myself. I've never gotten over the day I got saved. And uh, I know that, uh, you know... Uh, It's a thing where, you know, that should be what every Christian does. You never get past that day. You know, a good study to take in your Bible at some point concerning our lives would be a study of days in the Bible. Fundamentally, there's five important days in the Bible that uh, we all should at least know and understand. First of all, obviously, the most important will be the day of our salvation. Have there ever been a time in your life when you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior? That's day number one. Without that, you don't want to get into the next days. And it's a thing where that is so vital that everybody understands that that salvation is the only way that you're ever going to get not only eternal life, but anything that God has for you. So that will be the most important day to, to us, or it should be. The next day in the Bible you're going to find, and this is not really in any order, will be the day of the Lord. And you'll find that throughout the Word of God. Sometimes it's called that day or the day. But the day of the Lord will be a, always be a reference to the second coming of Christ. And, uh, you know, that's God's day. And that is the most important day to the nation of Israel. It's actually the most important day to God because He comes back to get Israel, His nation. And then the third one is the day of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's called the day of Christ. But that will be the rapture of the church. And that is, after my salvation, that is the most important uh, day to me. 
I don't know about you, but I got up this morning, I was prepared to preach, but I was hoping I would not have to. I was hoping that the Lord would come, and if there ever was a time that we need to have the Lord come back, it's the time that we're living in. So you find the day of Jesus Christ, and after my salvation, that's the most important day to me. Then, then you have the day that God will get you alone. And a great example of that would be Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. And we see a man by the name Jacob, whose his life really represents our life in many, many, many ways. Jacob means schemer. Jacob was always figuring the angles to get what he wanted and really didn't care much about what God wanted. He's a manipulator. He's someone who always looks at his own benefit more than he does anything that God wants him to do. But God had a plan for him. He's obviously one of the great patriarchs of the Bible. And hey, without Jacob, we wouldn't have the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So in spite of Jacob's indifference, God one day, and it's found in Genesis chapter 32, verse 24, and it simply says, and Jacob was left alone. It's at that point that God dealt with Jacob of what he really wanted Jacob to do. And Jacob wrestled with God, just like many of God's people wrestle with him today with what God wants us to do. But at the end result, the Bible says that he embraced God. And at that point, God changes his name. And you've heard me say it many, many times. There's, there's five people in the Bible who God changes their names. And when they do, it always, is a signi- it always signifies something uh, some major change in their life. And it always signifies that in, in most cases there that things are going to get better. In a couple of cases, things got worse. But it's, it, in Jacob's case, it was the turning point. And the time in your life and my life that may be the turning point is when God has to get you alone. We manipulate. We tell God what he wants to hear. We play the game. But suddenly God has something for you and uh, then he's going to get you alone. Now, the next day is probably the worst day. And that will be the day that God leaves you alone. And that'll be an example of Cain. There's many examples in the Bible. But in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, you find where it says, Cain left the presence of the Lord. And he never comes back. And the worst day of your life as a Christian will be the day that you get so involved in the spirit of falsehood that you deceive yourself beyond belief and finally you get the lie that you want out of Ezekiel 13 like we saw last week and God leaves you alone. Now you're left to your own devices. God now is not injecting himself into your life. This is called in the Bible the law of human collapse. Now, last week we talked about the spirit of falsehood. And I talked about the spirit of deception. And I showed you and talked to you how that families, moms and dads will put that spirit of falsehood in play in their family. And it it will in time, it will in time destroy the family. Many times they'll get the spirit of falsehood and the spirit of falsehood becomes the spirit of deception. They deceive themselves and that spirit permeates the family. Now, having said that, talking about Jacob, let me show you the principle of how that works. Jacob is a schemer. He schemed to get the birthright from his brother. He deceived his own father to do that. Where did he get the spirit of deception when you read the passage? From his mother. His mother had put in play in that family the spirit of falsehood and the spirit of deception. He picked up on it and he did it. But our story doesn't end there. As he has 12 boys, and you know the story how that the story of the 12 boys and Joseph, how that they sell Joseph down into slavery. 
Well, the deception and the spirit of deception started with his mom. It went to Jacob, and then Jacob passed it on to his boys. Because when his boys finally get rid of Joseph, they're going to kill him. But they don't kill him. They sell him to the Midianites, and he goes down into Egypt. So what do they do? They take a goat skin or a lamb skin, kill a lamb, cut the skin off, take the blood, and put it on Joseph's clothes, and take it back to their daddy and say, he got killed. It was always interesting to me that that lamb skin, is a, that skin is the same thing that, he, that, that Jacob used to deceive his daddy. You see, when the spirit of falsehood and deception starts in your family, you will pass it down to the generations. Now, there's three generations right there. There's Jacob's mom, there's Jacob, and then there's his boys. Now, I want you to see this. Not only will you pass on the spirit of falsehood or the spirit of deception to your own family, but every generation it gets passed on to, it gets worse. You smoke cigarettes, your kids will smoke marijuana. Those kids smoke marijuana, the next ones will do crack. It gets down. It's the law of human collapse. If God doesn't inject himself into your family and into your life, this is what happens. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And that's not even our message today. Now today... I want to go back to right after this great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And so let's read John chapter 6. Let's put it together starting in verse 16 through 21. And it says this. And when even was now come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum and it was now dark, and Jesus was, uh, was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at land, whether they went. Now, this will be another great story. And we will need to learn some things from here uh, that are going uh, from last week. Now, here's the storyline. They have to meet feeding of the 5,000. After that great miracle, he directs them to go down into the sea and get into a little boat. It's even. That's 6 o'clock in the afternoon or in the evening. And now they're out on this sea, and a terrible storm comes up, and it almost sinks them. And then, through the storm, they see Jesus walking on the water, and he comes and calms the storm, and all is well. Now, like the feeding of the 5,000, this is another story that most people are aware of. There are certain stories in the Bible that whether you're lost or whether you're saved, or whether you don't have any relationship with God at all, you have been in church or around church or in Sunday school as a kid enough to know that there are certain stories in the Bible you recognize. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of them. Noah's Ark is another one. Daniel in the lion's den. Sometimes the feeding, it's called the feeding of the 5,000. Sometimes it's called the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. And everybody remembers that Jesus walked on the water. And, uh, you know, back in the day, and I, I've, I've, I've changed and tempered down a little bit uh, from what I was back 25, 30, 40 years ago, but I always, I, never, I always had people that didn't like me, and I'm okay with that. I get it. I, I'm the kind of guy that you either love me or you hate me, and some people just love to hate me. I understand that. I don't take that personal because I know the way I am and the things I say and the stand I take. I'm going to turn people off. I get that. It comes with the territory. But that doesn't mean that I don't like you. It doesn't necessarily mean that I like you either, but it doesn't mean that I don't like you. And it doesn't mean that I don't have fun with you. Years ago, I used to do in a church of, you know, 2,000 people, 
I mean, half of them liked me and half of them didn't. When I would preach when the pastor was gone on Sunday morning, and some of you probably remember this were back in the day, there would be people that if they found out I was preaching, they'd get up and leave. Now, I have fun with that because I figured that out, and so I'd get up and I'd say, I'm preaching this morning, and uh, I'm going to pray here in a moment. For some of you who don't want to hear me preach or don't like me, while I'm praying, you can leave. Poor place would crack up. Now they're not going to leave. They're not going to go to the bathroom. They're not going to go out and fix their car if the horn's going off because they're going to be identified as not liking me. And they want to pretend they like me, but they really don't like me. The choir hated me. And the choir was a bunch of stuffy people. Terry knows, weren't they, Terry? A bunch of stuffy people. And they just, you know, all spiritual Pharisees. And they like to sit up there in the choir, you know, and, and, and look like they're spiritual. And I, had, I always baptized, you know. And, you know, they would have a couple of songs open up, the choir would sing, and then, and then they would sit down. And that we always had people to baptize. And I would I'd walk down in the baptistry, and I'd, I'd baptize the people. And... Uh, you know, and so I would get up there, and while they were singing their song, the, the baptistry was right here, and it was lower a little bit. If I was standing in it, and you were sitting, you could see from this far up. But there was a little ledge, and a choir was right in front of me. So they'd be up there singing, and I wasn't baptizing yet, and I'd be throwing water on the choir. And they'd look around like that, and I'd go, you know, and I'd smile at them. So one time, I got, they were doing some work up in the hallway there, and I, and I got in trouble for this, but you know what? I've been in trouble all my life. So I found this four-by-four, four and it fit right across the top steps of the baptistry. Now, you've got to imagine me. I'm in a white robe. No, they wore white robes when they baptized. I'm in a white robe. I, I look heavenly. I do. And these people don't like me. So I thought I was going to have some fun because they didn't, uh, see, they didn't think I believed the King James Bible. They didn't. I had a Sunday school class that was running six, seven hundred. They had Sunday school class you could call roll two chickens and a duck. I mean, it was like a Volkswagen. And they didn't like me. So I figured, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll have a little fun with them. So I put that two by six or four by four, whatever it was, right across the top step. And so pretend this is the baptistry right here. And this here is the wall you can't see. This here is the wall. And there's steps going down. And I put that two by six right across there. So it was time for the baptistry to happen. And I walked out on that two by six. <laughs> and the whole place was looking at me. And I said, sometimes folks just can't get in the water. You know what I'm saying? And that place roared. All except the people didn't like me. They thought it was sacrilegious. They thought it was, you know, making fun of, of Jesus or the, or, or the Bible or whatever. No, 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 no. You threw the Bible away a long time ago. Don't tell me about making fun of the Bible. So anyway, it was a thing where, hey, I always tried to have fun. And uh, I got chewed out after that. But, uh, uh, you know, and it was, the pastor and I were okay. And he chewed me out afterwards. And then I'm walking out the door and he says, by the way, that was the funniest thing I ever saw in my life. So I'm good. See, I'm good. I'm good. So this story here is an incredible story. And we want to use now today in this story that I'm going to tell you our trained eye of one of the most powerful stories in all the Bible for you and me as God's people. Because I know most of you. But that is not really even a criteria of are you who you really appear to be today? And to fully understand this great story and to get all that we need to get out of it, we need to apply another key rule in studying your Bible. Now, when it comes to this storm, them in the boat, there's three accounts of this in the Gospels. There's one here in John 6, which I just read. There's another one in Matthew chapter 14. And then there's one in Mark chapter 6. There's none in Luke. Now let me explain how you do this. Because there's going to be times in your Bible where you find two stories in two Gospels, sometimes four, uh, sometimes three like this one, or sometimes just one. 
And the way you do that, if you have multiple accounts and you want to get the whole story down, what you have to do is you have to get the three accounts laid out side by side. And what you want to do is you want to start with the one that gives you the most detail. And for us today, that'll be Mark chapter 6, verse 41 through 56. But that's where you want to start. You want to start with the one that gives you the most detail. And then you add the other two into it. And by doing that, that will give you a complete picture. And, and, and that's, how, that's how you do it right. So let's go back to Matthew for a moment and read that account. And then we're going to jump into the most detailed account. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 27. And straight away Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in a fourth watch... Of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Now, once we have those two down, and those are the limited ones, now let's look at Mark chapter 6, verses 41 through 56. And this is the detailed one. And then we're going to put John 6 and Matthew 14 into the mix. And we're going to see a great story picture come forth here. All right, verse 41. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side before unto Bethesda while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling in rowing. For the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them walking upon the sea and would have passed by uh, by them. And when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, for their heart was hardened. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of the uh, generat, and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, straight away they knew him, and ran through the whole region round about to begin to carry about in beds those that were sick <coughs> where they heard uh, he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets, and he besought him that they might touch it if they were the border of his garment. And many as touched him, were made whole. Let's pray. Father, help us today to take these three places and to learn not only how to put the Bible together in situations like this, but learn this great story. There's so much here that we need to know. And uh, this story may seem that it's about the apostles in a boat in a storm, but it's really much more than that. This is the picture of us. This is the picture of where we are at and who we are and the struggles that we face in everything that we do. And we pray now, Father, your blessings upon this time, and we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, when we get all three places together, and we, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, 
uh, we're now comparing Scripture with Scripture. We see an incredible story for each of us unfold. Now, there's a number of things that I want to identify here, and then we're going to put this whole thing together. So stay with me here. First thing, let's ID this body of water. This will be the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it talks about the uh, Generat here, which is a country. And the Sea of Galilee uh, is the north, northwest, on the northwest shore of this country. And so, verse 53, this sea is the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you do a little National Geographic here, you'll find that the Sea of Ga- Galilee is around 13 miles long. It's 7 miles wide and 150 feet deep. It's the second largest sea on earth below sea level, the Dead Sea being number one. Now, the second thing, verse 45, the Lord Jesus constrains them. That means he forces them to get into a little boat and sends them out at 6 o'clock in the evening. And then he goes into a mountain to pray. The third thing, verse 47 through 48, now we see that a terrible storm hits and they're caught in the midst of the sea in the middle of the night. The fourth thing is they're terrified and verse 48 says, he sees them toiling in rowing. And it also says that the wind was contrary to them. Everything about this story is against them. Now, The fifth thing, just as things look really bad and they're going down in this perfect storm, they see him walking on the water toward him. He gets into the boat, calms the storm, and they get to the other shore. Now, that's the story in a little more detail than the storyline I gave you a moment ago. But now let's put on our spiritual eye. Let's get on our Holy Spirit cap and let's really look at this and see what we have here today because within this story is an incredible story now what you have here trained eye as we walk back down through this see what you can pick out what we have here is an incredible picture of our own personal relationship with Christ and our labor in the ministry for him now In your hymnal there, you'll have a number of songs that always equate back either directly or indirectly to this story. Uh, In the sweet by and by, when we meet on that beautiful shore, see? Uh, In your hymnal, page 213, you have Jesus is the shelter uh, in a weary land, a shelter in a time of storm. Now, you're going to find all through the Bible and Christianity, you're going to find that this story is illustrated in the songwriters because of what it actually represents. And there's a number of things that you need to get down out of this story today. So if I were you, I'd get ready, get your little pencil out, get your notebook out, mark these things down. Or if you just want to sit back and enjoy it, you can get it online later and go back through it again, which you'll probably have to do anyhow because as fast as I speak, you know, you'll probably not get it down. But let me begin by saying this. They go into a storm. Now, my dear friend, there's two reasons as a Christian that a storm will come into your life. And I think we need to start with that. There are two fundamental reasons why you and me as a child of God will have storms come into our life. And I'll be honest, most of God's people do not understand what I'm about to say. They, they don't see God working in their life in any way, shape, or form. They have no spiritual discernment of what really happens when some catastrophe befalls them in their life they're left without a clue. And many times it leads to them to get mad at God. Many times it leads to bring them back to God. But having said that, you know, there are two basic reasons. The first time, the first thing God will put a storm in our lives uh, is to, uh, to have us to grow by. And for that, the motto will be the book of Job. You know, the book of Job to me has always been a fascinating book because I think it illustrates, and I've heard every sermon and read every book on Job that's worth reading and listening to, but I think fundamentally the book of Job comes down to one fundamental truth. Job loses everything in seven days that you and I will never lose in a lifetime. 
Now, there's people who lose their, lose their kids and lose their house and lose this and lose that uh, and, uh, and lose their health. But you don't find that in, in most life, everybody loses all of that. Now, he lost it in a week. And yet, when I look at that, Job was a good guy. The Bible says he loved God. He eschewed evil. He's offering sacrifices for his kids before he's even required to, by law to make sacrifices. There's no law in Job's world. He's a man who loves God, has gone with what he knows, and God made him great and prospered him. And then that day came when the storm came in his life. He loses his kids. He loses his house. He loses his animals, all his stocks and bonds. Everything is gone. And then, dad insult to injury, his three friends show up, and they falsely accuse him. So why he's going through what he's going through, because, you know, God is against him. And that God wasn't against him at all. Job came out of this storm better than he went in. And there'll be times in your life when God will put you through a storm for your growth. Because he's got something for you, but you only find it going through the storm. Now, I say that to say this. I, I, I marvel at Job. We all have problems in our life and you have somebody to call. You have a support group. You have a prayer line. You have a church. You have a pastor. He didn't have any of those things. He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a church. He didn't have a pastor. He didn't have, he didn't have any friends. He had absolutely nothing that you and I have except God. And you know what that tells me? That tells me to fundamentally, whatever storm God puts you through, God should be enough to get you through with all that we have. So the first storm that we look at will be something that God wants to prove you through. He'll put you into a storm to see what you're going to do. He knows what he's going to do. And he wants you to come out of that storm stronger, better, on a higher level. I'll use our own church. We went through, what, a year of coronavirus junk, terrible stuff. And, uh, but you know what? Here we are today uh, in standing, and we're in a much better situation than we were, you know, uh, before. I had the privilege to have a little dinner with Christina uh, at the youth thing the other night. We were sitting back there in the back. We were just talking. And she, you know, incredible insight. She, I mean, you're really lucky to have her for your wife. And you know that, don't you? I told her that she was lucky to have you. I don't think she agreed, but no. <laughs> you two are an incredible couple, and I want you to know I love you both very much. And I couldn't do what I do without you. But we were having a little conversation back there. And we were talking about all the kids and what they were doing. And I want to tell you something. We had a combination of the Timothy kids and then the high school kids that were moving up, and it was incredible. Those Timothy kids and some of the kids coming up, they get up and they gave their testimonies and they gave little, uh, you know, uh, uh, talks about the verse and the Bible. It was incredible. And I sat back there. We sat back there just watching the, the crowd of about uh, maybe 100 kids who were really, really in love with that book and loving God and God was doing something. And we sat back there and we talked about that. And she said something to me. She says, you know, we only got here because God took our church through a, a purging. And now this is what we got. And that is so true. We had to go through a storm. And the storm purged out of here what needed to be purged. And now we have all the new people that we come in. Addie moved down here. And, and then all the uh, people that have moved here and, and are coming from across the country. And all the new folks that are coming in. We're at a different level now than we were before we went into the storm. And God wants to do that with your individual life, if you'll allow him to do that. Now, the second storm will be God's chastisement in your life. And this is when we don't do what we should do. Because we get out of fellowship, we hurt, we, we're headed for a big lie... We deceive ourselves. We think that God is not important. Church is not important. And we're now going to live our own life. But because we belong to God, He's not going to allow that to happen. 
And so he sends us, you, me, into a storm. A life of violated biblical principles will always bring a storm in our lives. It'll bring a storm in your family. It'll bring a storm in your marriage. It'll bring a storm with your kids. Based on the spirit of falsehood that you have been following, that you're injecting that into your family. And for sure, the Holy Spirit of God will let you know which one you're going through. Whenever some big thing happens in my life, I just time out and I ask myself, I ask myself three questions why this is happening to me. Is God allowing this to happen because of me, that I need to get something right in my life? Or second, is God allowing this to happen because he's going to put somebody else in my life that I can help? Or three, is he putting me through this because of my own personal growth? And when you come to the Holy Spirit of God and ask him those three questions, you won't have to wait for an answer. It'll come instantaneously. Job chapter 9 verse 4 is, is, is one of my favorite uh, verses in the Bible. And it says, who hath hardened himself against him and prospered? And the answer to that is nobody. I don't know how many of the 5,000 in this story didn't have the right attitude of heart, but I want you to know the first thing in our story is the ones that I know for sure didn't were the disciples. The Bible says in verse 51 and 52, And he went up unto them, unto the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were so amazed in themselves, beyond measure and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Now, don't you think for just a moment that as a Christian, that can't happen to us. Now, we see here even the apostles, and they'd been with him for the last three and a half years, or last two years anyhow. So storms will come into our life because we have a hardened heart. We get to that place where we don't, we don't see things the way God sees them anymore, and it can happen and will happen to anybody. We'll talk more about that here in just a little bit. Now, the second thing we need to see, verse 45. He constrained them to get into that little boat. Now, I'm just going to tell you this. That boat, that boat is a type of Christ. As long as they were in the boat, they were safe. It's like Noah's ark. Noah and the flood, Noah's ark, that big boat that Noah built, that's a type of Christ. And, of course, it, uh, it, uh, it, 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 it had a door in the side, and that's how everybody got in. When Christ was dying on the cross, they put a sword in his, or a spear in his side, and he died. The blood came out, and because of that death, that's how you and I got in Christ. So this little boat's a picture of Christ. And these disciples are a picture of me and you that today are in Christ. There's an old song, again, the old songs that we sing, Ship Ahoy. The old song, Old Ship Mount Zion and Jesus Pilots My Boat. It's a picture, this little boat is a picture of Christ and these guys in it are a picture of the church age of you and me saved and in Christ. Now the next thing, verse 46. He, Christ, what he constrains them to get into a ship and they get out into the sea. He goes into a mountain to pray. Now this will be in type a picture of Hebrews chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, where he's on spiritual Mount Zion during the church age and he's making intercessory prayer for you and for me with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now, here it is. Here's the picture. We are on the sea of life. In the middle of the night, the church age. And we're all in a storm of life. Christ is not here. Where is he? He's at spiritual Mount Zion, Psalm 48, on the sides of the north. And he's praying right now for every one of us. And he's making intercessory prayer, as I said, Romans 8, 26, with groanings that cannot be uttered. And I want you to know that every day of our lives, he's praying for you because he's got a job for us to do. Now, the next thing. 
He sends them out in the even. That's 6 p.m. And they get caught by design now in a terrible storm. And here they are in the middle of the night, verse 47, in the midst of the sea. Now, going back to our geographical study here, the Sea of Galilee is seven and a half miles wide, or seven miles wide. So that means if they're in the mist, they're three and a half miles in. In the middle of the night, pitch black, raging waves about to swamp the boat, and yet I want to tell you, my Bible says, he saw them. He saw them toiling and rowing. And whatever storm you're going through right now, Whatever struggle you have if you're God's child, I don't care if it's by your own stupidity or because of the fact that God is putting you through something. I want, to see, I want you to know he's on spiritual Mount Zion and he's making intercessory prayer for you and he sees every one of us toiling in our rowing. They're about to flounder. The howling wind. Oh, I can only imagine how scary that must have been. Most certainly they're in a terrible, desperate situation. Can you imagine? In a little boat, 11 guys bailing water, trying to row to fight the wind in the storm. They try to put a sail up and it rips apart. And the waves are coming over the top and it just, they can't see it. It's pitch black. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been in our own sea of life and disaster where the waves were so high and the winds were howling and it scared us to death. We've all experienced that. Now, what I'm about to say, you have to get this. Now, I know, I know, and I get it, day and age that we live in, I get it, I get it. A lot of people think I'm nuts. Some of the things I say are so beyond the pale of, of, of where most of God's people are at today. I totally understand that. I know people that think that in my preaching I'm crazy. Well, I just got to say this for you, if I'm crazy because I believe what you used to believe, and I still believe it, you pray for me that I get worse. Because what I'm about, and I know, you know, I'm just some old coot up here that lost touch with reality. Thank you. I love you too, son. (laughs) And uh, I know, I know, you know, people, I'm sure on the website, people, you know, I, I mean, you bring people here and they hear me one time and you never see them again. I understand that. I'm not mad at it. If you meet me at McDonald's on Thursday night after Bible study, I'll buy you a cheeseburger. I'm okay with that. Just kidding. I don't eat there anymore. But anyway, but it's a thing where I understand. The Bible tells us that in the day and age that we live in, that the great things of God have now become strange things. The Bible tells us in the day and age that we live in, the good things are now called bad, and the bad things are now called good. I get it. So, I understand. You think I, when I get up and I, t- and I say things like this, and I say a lot of things, but when I get up and I say, and I cringe every time I say it, but I'm going to keep on saying it. I don't believe that most people today that claim to be saved are really saved. And I'm going to tell you something. The ones that are left that are truly saved, I don't believe you have any understanding of a real relationship with him for the most part. Now, this may be a group here that's a little different than that because you get blasted with it, and for you to stick around here for a year, two years, or three years, you got to have some serious issues. <laughs> but I understand. People hear me say, well, you know what? I don't think that most of God's people that are truly saved even understand who he is. And they'll say, yeah, there he goes again. There's that old coot up there just trying to lost touch with reality. I know I love Jesus. I go to church. I have a King James Bible. I go, I, I, I just, okay, 
let me show you this. Step, take me out of it. Forget my craziness. Let me show you one place in the Bible that proves that I'm not nuts, but you are. Thank you. You've got to see this. Verse 48 and 49. When he comes to them through the storm, walking on the water on the fourth watch. Now, if you know anything about the Bible at all, you know that's a picture of the rapture of the church. Mark chapter 13, at the end of the chapter, he tells you that the Lord's going to come in one of four watches, and he comes in the fourth watch. So here he is, the disciples, me and you, in Christ, the boat, on the sea of life in a terrible storm, They've forgotten the miracles that he did. They have forgotten who he is. And so they're <clears throat> toiling and rowing, almost to be swamped. And in the fourth watch, he's walking on the water, the great deep, coming down, picture of the rapture of the church. You want a picture of the body of Christ right now today in most of God's people? The Bible says when he came walking on the water to them through the storm, they didn't recognize him anymore. They didn't know who he was. They thought he was a spirit. They're afraid. At the very Jesus coming to rescue them. And they can't even recognize him. I've told you many, many times, God's people today have no idea who he really is. And you miss him in your life. Verse 48 and 49 says he could have walked right past them. And they didn't recognize him. They, through the hardness of their heart, just like so many of God's people today, they went to church, they had the right Bible, they sang the songs. They came to Bible study. But when the storms of life came, they had no clue who he really was because all the time they were under a spirit of falsehood. The storms of life <coughs> had blinded them from who he really is. <coughs> and they don't even recognize him anymore. Hey, don't kid me, man. Uh, you, you have deceived yourself. Look, and I ask, what will it take? What will it take for some of God's people to finally get it figured out? What's it going to take for some of God's people? And I realize God will put you into a storm and some guys and gals will come through it and they'll get it. Most of them will not. And do you know what it's going to take? It's in the story. He's walking on the water in the fourth watch of the night. And as I said, Mark chapter 13, verse 34 through 37 talks about the four watches. It talks about the even. It talks about the midnight. It talks about the cock crowing. And it talks about the morning, the fourth watch. And he's coming at the, at the morning watch on the water in the fourth watch. And that's the rapture of the church. And a picture of God's people so deceived and under the spirit of falsehood of who he really is, they can't find him. And that's why they are left alone on the sea of life. And when the disasters come and he tries to help them through this church, through the person sitting next to you, or through the Word of God, you can't get it. What's it going to take? In the story, I'll tell you what it takes. Verse 50. And immediately... 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says the rapture is in a twinkling of an eye immediately. They're now on the other shore. And when they hit that shore, now they know who he really is. And many of God's people, that's their story. You have lost all knowledge of who he is. And when you hit the other shore through the rapture of the church and you get home to heaven, then and only then are you going to realize what you should realize right now about who he is. Too late. 
Seeing him now through the word of God as he, when, when the rapture takes place, it should be no surprise who he is. When you're going through the storms of life, it should be no surprise that he's on the mountain praying for you while you're going through the storm. Then you, all you got to do is find out which one of the two you're going through the storm. If it's because of your stupidity, fix it. If it's because he's trying to train you and teach you, enjoy it. Learn from it. Now, come on, guys. These disciples have been with him almost three years now. They have seen firsthand every miracle that he's done. They have seen him do everything, raise the dead, heal the sick. They were there when he turned the water to wine. They have watched him in every miracle. They were right there. They slept with him. They ate with him. They walked with him. They talked with him. And now because of the great blessings of the ministry, they guarded not their heart. There's a real danger in success in your life as a Christian I think, and I don't know what to do about this, and I'm certainly not going to change it, but I think in, in some ways, and this is my own fault, and I get this, and I'll take responsibility for it. I think in some cases, I give you too much Bible, and I'm there too much for you. But that's my nature. You see, when I got saved, I got, I got sick of the world. And the first thing I did is start throwing up. So I've been throwing up for the last 50 years, and you just happen to get all over you. And I'm not going to stop teaching the Bible. I know I'm not. Because I know, I know that maybe only one or two of you out there are going to take every effort I have and actually do something with it. The rest of you may take your spiritual meal ticket and take all that I give, all the things. You, you, please, just understand. Yesterday in Institute, where in the world can you go to get what you got yesterday on the book of Acts? Just tell me. You got everything you need here. You can ask any question you want to ask. I got a thousand people to put with whoever's struggling with whatever. You don't have to go through the sea of life yourself unless you just want to. But to whom much is given, much is required. And there's God's people who take and they take and they take and they bloat themselves up into some kind of spiritual good year blimp. Now, if you're in combat, spitfire, if you're in combat between her and me, if you're in combat and you're a fighter pilot, you do not want to get into a dogfight with a Mr. Schmidt, a MiG-21, and a blimp. You know how long it takes a blimp? I mean, you're in a fighter plane, you want to hit left rudder boy, and you want to be down. It takes a blimp 15 minutes to even turn. In other words, Christians that are spiritual blimps are no good in a dogfight. You're no good in any fight. And the truth of the matter is, you're just filled with a lot of gas. And you float through churches. You float to this one for a while. Then you float to another one for a while. Your whole life is just float. And I'll tell you what, I, when you get to heaven, the only good you're going to do is that they fish in heaven with a great deep, You'll make a good bobber because all you do is float. You don't do anything. You're certainly no good in a fight. And I'm telling you, what, what is it going to take? These guys had been with him through everything. And I'm telling you, you can get the more word of God you get, the more God blesses you, you have to be careful. <clears throat> That's why God put Job what he went through. Job had gotten so much. And I'm telling you, it's the, this church will be the easiest place in the world to get out of fellowship with God. Not because we pass out drinks and beer and have all the things that all the other places do. 
churches, but because of the Bible you get here. Because there's a real danger that you'll just take it and do nothing with it. And now because of the great blessings of the ministry, they guarded not their heart. And they too, like us, have grown cold and hardened to the things of God. And again, I say, verse Job 9, 4, 4, who have hardened themselves against him and prospered? Nobody. Don't think for a second this can't happen to us. From the day of your salvation to the day God leaves you alone. Through the spirit of falsehood, the spirit of, 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 of you deceiving yourself. And, and, and they just like us, or maybe we're just like them. They'd forgotten all that he'd done. They'd forgotten the day that they got saved. They'd forgotten how God pulled them out of the miry, out of the miry pit and set your feet upon a rock and established your goings. Forgot that. We've forgotten what our life was like before the day pulled us out, God pulled us out of the mess we were in. And if you had a chance, you'd never go back to it. If you actually sat down and thought about it, you'd thank God the rest of your life for where he got you. And on top of that, you'd be burning in hell for all of eternity. We've forgotten those things. Now, once you forget the miracles that God, the miracle of the new birth that God has done in your life, it's easy then to forget the calling that God has for you. God saved you for a calling. He's got something that he wants you to do. And once you forget what he did for you in the miracles and you forget the calling, then you can forget the ministry. Because the ministry is people and you're too stuck on yourself to ever give yourself to anybody. And I watch these guys. And, 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 and they're good guys. But they're just like us. <clears throat> they've been with him for almost three years now. And they've gotten so successful. I mean, I know how it is. Could you imagine... Being one of the 12, being wherever Jesus goes, and all the people flocking to them, and then because they can't get to him, they flock to you. Can you imagine what that do with your ego? I mean, here you are. You're under the apostles out there, you know, and, uh, you know, they can't get to and a, a crowd comes up to you, and they'd say, you're one of his, aren't you? And I'd say, you'd say, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm one of his, yes. Uh, do, you, do you have any... Well, don't tell anybody, but I'm closer to him than the other guys. What do you need? You like that stuff, man. I like that stuff. You got to be careful with that. I guarantee you, and I know they didn't have them back then, but they were probably looking forward to the next dispensation when they could order the big gospel bus, travel around Asia Minor with a big banner on it, Disciples for Jesus. They got so caught up in the success. They got so caught up in being around and being with him and the notoriety of who he is, just like the notoriety of you knowing and learning the Bible. And people look to you for answers. If you're not careful, you'll like that too much. And you'll actually think that you really do got all the answers. I never think for a moment that I have all the answers in the Bible. A number of years ago, I had a guy in Bible study that raised a question, and he said, you think you know more about the Bible than anybody? And I said, no, that's not true. I, don't, I said, I've never said that. You misunderstood me. I didn't say I knew more about the Bible than anybody. I just said I knew more about the Bible than you do. That ended that conversation. But I'm telling you, success is a dangerous thing. When people start to ask you and, talk to you and you give them answers you got to be careful with that they didn't they got to the place where they they had lost and so now in Matthew chapter 19 they're so big and so powerful that all these little kids are coming to Jesus and and what do they do we got to keep the kids back they got dirty hands we all got white robes on we can't get them dirty you got to forbid the kids from coming. This is an adult ministry. You know what Jesus said? He says, what are you doing? He says, I got to tell you something, pal. Except all of you come to me as a little child. 
You ain't going to have anything with me. Don't forbid those little kids to come, but that's where they were. That's where they were. They got professional, just like so many of God's people. You know how you know you're in the wrong church? When the head pastor of that church won't give you his cell phone number. That's how you know. When you've got to go through a, a, an executive assistant to get to him. I call it the Martin Bormann syndrome. During the Third Reich, Adolf Hitler, everybody thought he was the most powerful man in the Third Reich. He really wasn't. You know who was the most powerful man in the Third Reich? Martin Bormann. You know who Martin Bormann was? He was his personal secretary, and you couldn't get in to see Adolf without going through Martin. So Martin decided who got to see him and who didn't, and from that he controlled the whole thing. Don't you kid me. Don't you kid me at all. You didn't want to be bothered with little kids. Over in Matthew chapter 15, you got this woman who's got a, <coughs> she's got a legitimate <coughs> problem. Her daughter is vexed with a devil. Three times she comes to the disciples. And they just speak, they just can't handle it, man. They said, send her away, send her away. We don't got time for this. We want, she ain't got no money. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 14, they lost the power to cast out demons out of demon-possessed people. And they're actually wondering why. It's the reason why some of God's people lose the power to do the ministry today and they can't figure it out. Oh, and then <laughs> Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Here we are. Instead of praying for the ministry, trying to do everything they can do and get all the people in, they're standing around arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. That's us. And to get them back on track, he sends them into a storm by design. What an incredible lesson for all of us. Now, you got to get this. There will be storms in our lives. There's storms that are going to be coming yet in our lives as individuals and most certainly probably as a church. And there's going to be times when you find yourself in the midst of a storm for one of two reasons. Either you're not doing what's right with God or you are and God has something for you to grow through. But I want you to know right now, before we go one step further, the sea of life is unforgiving. The sea of life will not cut you any slack. The sea of life with the roaring waves and the howling wind exists for one reason, to destroy you. And the winds of these storms, my friend, don't deceive yourself. They will always be contrary to the child of God. Our job is to never lose sight of Him. And every storm, knowing no matter what I'm going through, <clears throat> He's on Mount Zion and He sees me in my toiling and rowing. Never not be able to recognize who he is or what he's doing and whatever going on in your life. I don't have to fear the storm because I have the principles of the one who controls the storms. My job, our job, and there'll be storms coming. There'll be some rough storms ahead, I'm sure. Our job is to stay focused on his word, know who he is, and not fear the storms but to keep our eye on the great principles and on the other shore. And then when you got your know who he is and you see the other shore, here's what you do. Two things. You keep rowing the boat and you keep looking for his coming. I'm going to row the boat till I meet him walking on the water. It probably will be in the middle of a terrible storm. But you know what? I know who he is when he comes walking in the water because I've watched him and seen him now for over 50 years of my life. I know exactly who he is. And I'll row the boat till he comes. And as John said in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, in the last prayer in the Bible, 22:20, Surely I come quickly, amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Our job is to keep rowing the boat and looking for him. But my friend, don't wait till you get to the other shore to really see and understand who he is. And that's my fear of so many of God's people. 
Can you imagine what the rapture is going to be, though so many of God's people who know nothing about it, who know nothing about him? And when he comes walking on that water, they're just like the guys in the boat. They do not recognize him till they get to the other shore. You see, when you get to the other shore, you're going to have the mind of Christ, and you're going to know everything that God knows in that exact instant of time. You're going to know why God saved you, what God had you to do, what he called you to do, what your ministry was, and you're going to see everything and everybody that he put in your life to accomplish it. And then like a hungry giant coming home for lunch, you're going to see that you forsook it. And you made your life, what you wanted to do, more important than the one that died for you. And that reality is going to hit you like an 18-wheeler going 80 miles an hour when you're standing in the middle of the freeway. And that's going to be a tragedy. In this church, God's doing some amazing things. People are getting saved. People are coming in, joining, new families. And there's one reason and one reason only. And that is because that you, God's people, for the majority of you, you decided to know who he is and you picked up an oar and you're rowing the boat. And we will get to the other shore. No matter what storms come, we will get to the other shore. My prayer for you is don't wait till you get there till you find out who he really is. Find out now. What a great story. What a great illustration. What a great picture of out of that great miracle what came to be and why God constrained them to get into a ship and put him into that terrible storm. But all the time, he saw them toiling and rowing. And all the time, he was making prayer and intercession for them. Finally, he comes, just like he will for us. My advice, row the boat. Row the boat. Row the boat and look for his coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do 